you're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. Conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Degrees of Freedom. This is the first of 2024. Happy New Year, Marcello. It's good Happy to see New you Year. again. I'm very happy to to be back in the podcasting studio, not just because I've missed uh, recording podcasts with you, Marcello, but also because this is uh, an episode that I've been looking forward to for actually quite a long time. This is uh, sort of a part one of a two-part series on reading and writing, academic reading and writing, or even reading and writing for fun, if that's what we decide to do. And we start today by talking about the, the skill of reading, um, a skill that is often assumed to be perhaps as natural as, as walking, and yet it has a lot of complexity that we're going to talk about today. This is an episode that I think primarily is directed towards those who are starting out in their academic fields and learning how to approach different texts, books, academic articles, and anything else. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion that we're going to have today. Indeed, this is something that I was looking forward for a while. Uh, with us, we have two special guests today and quite a diverse uh, group of guests. On uh, my left hand side, I can see Franz Sitzma is a um, professor uh, at the Faculty of Special Science and the director of, of the Agricola School. And uh, is also one of the lecturer of the scientific reading, debating and reflecting course, which actually made us very, very curious and this fits perfectly with today's episode. And on my right hand side, there is Enrique Kreixelt, um, one of our ma master students in mathematics and also philosopher. And so I'm really looking forward to hear how different things are between mathematics, philosophy and given our background, also social scientist uh, and uh, psychology. So perhaps I let you give two words to introduce yourself and what you think about reading. Franz, would you like to start? Uh, thank you, and, and thank you for uh, in inviting me on this uh, super interesting topic, actually. I'm, uh, as you said, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm an associate professor at the Faculty of Spatial Science. I do a lot of work on the value of nature and landscape, actually. And I'm director of this Rudolf uh, Agricola uh, School for Sustainable Development. And... Um, well, we live in an age with a lot of uh, videos, and this is a podcast, but at the basis of most science, I think, is, is text and, and text you read. So I think it's a, it's, it's a very important topic to discuss. Enrique? Yeah, um, yeah so um, my name is Enrique. Uh, I'm uh, indeed a master's student in mathematics at the moment, um, nearing the end of my studies. And before doing mathematics, I did a bachelor's in philosophy, two studies which I think have most in common that there's very little practical work involved, and most of it is uh, sit is uh, and most of it is uh, spent behind a desk. And um, yeah, when I first heard that there was a podcast episode about reading, I was a little unsure what it was going to be about, and I've mentioned it to other people and everyone has asked me oh it's about reading Wh what is that about but it it is a very interesting topic because it is something that i did and think um 
everyone assumes is a very natural. It's not something that you think about or talk about or don't really, you know, when you're done with elementary school, you don't really spend much time learning how to read because it's something that we assume we can do. But there is more to it than just looking at words on a paper. So I think it's quite an interesting topic to discuss. Yeah, this is exactly the the approach that I take to it's this assumption that uh, well, everybody knows how to do this. We don't have to talk to each other about this. Everybody knows how to read. We can just go straight into discussing the content, but um, not really having a lot of uh, opportunities to discuss what it means to understand this content. Is this what prompted uh, you, Franz, and your your colleagues to to have this course in the re- in the master's program in spatial sciences? Well. Uh, perhaps it's good to say a few words on how this, this what this course actually is and, and what it is in the program. So uh, I, I coordinate and I teach in this research master uh, uh, program. It's a two-year program in which your research master basically uh, trains you to become a researcher, a PhD researcher or another researcher. And, um, and students take many courses. And as you go from the bachelor to the master level, a lot of texts revolve around studying articles. And um, articles are, um, obviously they have a, have a certain structure and they uh, they are sort of fragments of science. Often you could say it's, it's small little subjects, small texts, very dense, uh, in a way sort of technical often. So you need to do close reading. Um, and then, but a researcher, being a researcher, is also about curiosity. Um, being an academic is also closely connected to having, let's say, helicopter view, stepping back from things. So that, that is the big challenge in science, basically. We are, our challenge is to be more precise than anybody, <laughs> so in the detail, but also zooming out more than anybody. So we have this, this, this huge tension basically in our work and it's something it's an endless process right you can be increasingly precise increasingly precise and you can be and you can zoom out and zoom out and I have my philosophy colleague here next to me so that's part of science so what we wanted to do in the program is read but not the scientific article stuff but more this broader books casting a broader net about what our subject is about human geography, but also what science is about, what studying may be about, so a bit at a higher level. And uh, also to make sure that reading remains fun. Because a lot of reading is actually spoiled by taking exams, in my, my view. So if you, if you look at the books you have around the house, you pick up a book, and you read it from the beginning to the end because you like it. And other books, you halfway, you say, oh, I don't know, you put it away. And we, in our educational systems, we have books, and you need to read them. But you also have to take an exam, or you have to do something with it. So there's no... And, and people get focused on what they need to do with it, and before you know it, basically the, the, the fun is, is, is sort of destroyed. So we read books, but we don't take an exam about it. We just discuss the book. We talk about it. And um, 
some people say, oh, I hated, hated this book. I couldn't finish it or I fell asleep. It happened. I mean, we, we, we take close care of what we choose, but, but still, this happens. And I think that's okay. How can you, if you have 20 students and you have a list of books, it's, it's sort of an illusion that everybody likes the same book. So um, that was one thing why we, we set up this course to, to, uh, to, to, to read uh, nice books together and have a nice atmosphere of, oh, have you read that book? Oh, what do you like about it? And discover also um, what you like in it. Discover your own curiosity, why you like it, why you didn't like it can also be very important. And in the course, but that's not particularly about reading, but we also invite uh, students to, um, uh, they keep a diary every week. They write a post about their experience, their thoughts. Uh, their prof- it's a professional diary, uh, but it can be about anything related to their, their development. And I think uh, that's also important that we read the books to support development. Thank you, Franz. So one of the, I'm going to take a little bit of a role of a signposter here and kind of uh, identify some key lessons, perhaps, or key emergent uh, ideas that come from what we share. And one of the things that uh, I really appreciated about what you said uh, about the uh, experiences that you're describing, and I also share in the experiences that I have with uh, my students who are uh, bachelor students also reading articles in the in the program, and one of the first things that I wish for them to experience through these articles is to have an opinion on the writing. And one of the first things that uh, I try to do uh, in the course is to comment on the writing style of a particular article. We have articles from the 1950s all the way to 2022, I think, in the course. And the writing style changes dramatically, and some people are humorous, and some people are frustrating in their writing. Some are very precise, some are very verbose. Uh, for some, one author's writing works really well, and another author's doesn't work at all, and for others, vice versa. And I find it really important to be able to say the writing style is a matter of opinion, and it contributes to the experience of learning to understand what is in in that text. So to have well, a relationship. It's a very interesting with topic, actually. This development in science, because I, in my teaching, I see if we have very old texts, mm-hmm. like you say, 1950s, some of that maybe key texts, or 1930s or 1900s, you could not publish this in any way anymore as Absolutely. a scientific thing. Absolutely. So you also see a development in science, I think, that it becomes sort of reporting uh, and stricter and stricter rules, and only, let's say, well, at, at some very high levels, or if you're very senior, you're allowed to sort of <laughs> write normal <laughs> uh, language. So it, it's great. We have thing. very similar discussions yeah. about some of these articles, and I wonder whether some of this is just survivor bias, that you know, some of the old texts that survive and are still being looked at in our courses are the ones that have a lot of character or have a lot of uh, impact. And uh, I, th- I think we still have um, uh, a number of things like uh, that. I don't know. I mean, this is really fascinating. <laughs> when you were talking, France, I was thinking, God, I was to take this course. Uh, and then uh, when you intervene with uh, comparing the writing styles, this is something that we I don't we don't really do it in mathematics. However, if I think at the discussion I have with my PhD students, for example, also with my master's students, sometimes they say, well, this other is really terrible. You cannot understand anything was done. Everything it's easy to see and it takes 50 <laughs> pages to understand what's easy to see. 
and others are going to a great length on the st- to explain what they do. And then uh, you said this thing about historical papers, that papers from the 20s you would never be able to publish now, and it's absolutely the same in mathematics. Like, we have old papers, even by Schrodinger or Dirac, these old famous people, they are written to explain a topic, they're fantastic to get an understanding, but they leave so many gaps for the reader that nowadays a reviewer would say, just rewrite this thing, remove the explanation, just give us the solutions there, just explain what is going on. Somehow I can see that we don't do this comparison, and yet I am sure, and I know that many of our students don't like the textbook that we give them or the paper that we give them to read, and they have go to great length to find a different book that perhaps we don't like, but resonate with them. But then we have an issue. I don't know how it is in special sciences or psychology, but um, if I think at the courses I'm teaching right now, if you take a different book, the notation will be completely different. Some of the conventions will be very, very different. So all the plus and minus signs, all the prefactors, the constant will be all over the place and nothing will fit then if you try to fit it in what I'm saying in class. You say, no, everything is wrong here. There should be a minus there, and there should be a pi there, and there should be one over alpha factorial appearing there, and it's not fitting with what I'm saying in the lecture because because the book that they take or the notes that they wrote use a certain convention, and there is no standard on this convention. Is that something that happens also in other disciplines? Our textbooks have a fair amount of overlap, but also sufficient differences that they're not easy to swap. However, that's never been a very satisfying answer to this question for me because if the knowledge that I'm, you know, dealing with in my course, let's say research methods, can't even transfer to another textbook on exactly the same topic written by a slightly different author, what's the point of what it is that uh, we're learning within this course? So flexibility, generalizability in vocabulary and style and topic also, I think, is a different kind of question. But I, I think it's a little bit similar to your issue, Marcello. They're not interchangeable to that uh, to, to a satisfying degree. What's your experience, Enrique? Um, well, I, I definitely uh, agree with what you said about mathematics. It's sometimes you, you read a paper and there's a gap and you look at some other texts to fill that gap to understand what what is being done and then you find the exact argument the exact proof you need in a different text but it it takes you a day to understand how it is even the same as what is happening in your paper because then everything is different the notation is different um so yes i think that's that's definitely something that that i notice um, I was thinking about philosophy, and I think in philosophy it's it's usually the text itself is the topic of study. I mean, there are some textbooks in evolved every once in a while, but usually the thing that we're studying is, you know, Descartes' argument or um, or some theory that is written by an author, and you want to read the original author, so there's no there's no swapping it for something else, but you're definitely allowed to have an opinion on how well written it is. On this, I want to pick up on what you say, Henrique, and also link it back to something that Franz mentioned when he was describing the course, where you talk about the shift between textbooks to primary sources. And uh, I think this is also what you're describing. And indeed, 
this is the case, I think, for most subjects that at some point within the uh, one's academic development, whether it happens within a bachelor program or between the bachelor and the master or somewhere, there's this transition between, let's call them digested textbook types of sources and primary sources, which are maybe a little bit rougher, a little bit less digested. Uh, you call them fragments of science, France, which I appreciated a lot. Can we talk a little bit about what this means in the, in, in the manner or intention of reading these types of material and how you approach it in the course and, Enrique, how you approached it in your own development? I have a thing with textbooks, and I wonder if it resonates with you. It's uh, So w when you spoke, uh, I thought actually what you would like from a textbook is sort of a synthesis idea, right? And and then it's sort of, that's sort of the ideal, that okay, this is the state of knowledge, this author contributed, this, this one contributed that. But my experience is that sometimes this happens, but quite often these textbooks are also a bit historical often in the sense that they have to talk about how the field developed. So they leave the reader with a bit of a answer. So what often happens is, let's say, in the 20s and 30s, they were the, the field was busy with doing this and this and this, and then the, some author came with this, and then there was critique, and then there's sort of a gap because it's never resolved. Often or sometimes it's two rounds extra of critique, but anyway, then, and then we switch to a different subject, basically. And then in the 1950s, there were more data-driven stuff going on, and then, da, 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 people did that. And then we had critique on that. So if, if you read like a novel, you could say, come on, finish your story, right? <laughs> but it's in science, it doesn't work, well, quite often not that way. So it's, it's a bit of an unsatisfactory experience often, and, and you also wonder a bit often why, well, how to study it basically how, how to read it because if you uh, it, it's very inconclusive uh, often i see yeah I, I, and, I, I, and and while ideally you would say okay bring it on we have all these fragments now what can we where do we stand and where do we need to go sort of like but which is i suppose also the skill that you hope is developed through one's academic training the hmm. ability to take various fragments, individual sources, different voices, different perspectives, and slowly pick up the skills of breaking them down, understanding them in your own voice, and then synthesizing them back together in order to understand a particular issue, which is, I suppose, what you're describing a textbook should be doing and what we want our students to be doing through their progression through um, yeah. higher education. But, uh, for instance, we have... Um in my field, we have thinking of Kristaller, sort of a 1930s German author, very influential. But there was a lot of critique at some point. So it was a very productive thing at some point, and then there was a lot of critique. And that was 1930s, and there was 1950s, 1960s, and then at some point, this type of stuff was sort of left. Still, we want students to understand, because it's a sort of classical thing. But then what to do with it? After all this critique, it's sort of a, it's difficult to study, right? <laughs> because nobody really took it further, although there's some approaches perhaps. But generally, it's sort of a leftover thing. Uh, we tried it for a while, it was fun, and then we left it. And, and, and then sometimes you wonder, why do students have to, have to de learn it? And often I feel that it's still valid, 
And um, so it's more about productivity, that it every, every concept, every angle, every perspective has a certain productivity, mm-hmm. and you can still keep it. You can combine it. You can keep different things in a field, and despite the critique, actually, and although the critique is functional at some point and it has its limitations, but uh, at some point you can't take it really can't take it any further. But then the student might think, okay, so that was a bit of a lousy thing, right? It was an idea, and then it was a it was a nice book, but then but then so much critique, so I leave it. But we're still teaching it. So I, th- that I always found it a bit difficult. Yeah. Well, the process is the goal, right? The, cri- the, the critical analysis, this deconstruction, this understanding why this road is, uh, is not the right one, perhaps, is the entire value of learning, or is the learning itself, wouldn't yeah. you say? In a way, you could say, and we have methods in science, we have concepts, and a- every method, every concept is, has its limitations. So... If you start digging into a subject, at some point, insight comes. Uh, but it's, to my experience, it's always a bit in between everything where it comes from. It's, it's hardly ever that it's just, just one method and it delivers the answer. So there is something, there's a bit of magic happening, actually. And, and well, I don't know if this makes sense to you. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it does. <laughs> I was thinking again when you were talking because this is something that doesn't resonate with me and resonates with <laughs> me in a very weird way. On the one hand, if I think about critiquing mathematical work, the moment the proof is correct, the proof is correct. And then it's hardly criticable in the sense it's proven. On the other hand, you might say, okay, there might be a better way of proving or a different way of proving that gives you a more flexible result or that adapts this result to another level. And this very often brings advances in mathematics, but there is not that much discussion on the critique. But then when you were discussing this, you say, okay, but this also shows the process, right? How you're getting there, how you are uh, questioning that, and how you're moving on to something else, still keeping that in the back of your mind as a counterexample of something that went wrong or as an example of what not to do or what you might do but needs to adjust. And in mathematics, nobody's publishing the wrong results. Nobody's publishing the failed proof that teaches you actually why that doesn't work, even though it seems like a natural idea, which at this point, I think it's a, it's a mistake, right? Because we are hiding a lot of the work that is going on and a lot of the insight that you gain by your self or group critiques of what has been going on. And I never thought about that before. So it's a kind of, I don't have an answer on a very strong opinion on that because it's the first time I, <laughs> I think about it. And so in that sense, I think it's actually nice that you're thinking about this critique, but it's something that is different from the type of reading and the type of, of discussion you have in mathematics, right? Once the statement is there, you either find a different proof or improve the statement in the sense you make it with weaker assumption or you make with a stronger uh, statement in the theorem, some more precise estimates, some... Um, some more general setting in which you're proving it, and then the discussion is about uh, is this result valid also if I remove some of the assumption or if I look at it in a different setting, and then there is a lot of work perhaps to make it work because the original proof is not uh, suitable for that other setting. That's a very good point. I think in mathematical writing, a a lot of the process is hidden. There's no, if you read a textbook or an article, the idea of the article is this is the state of things, this is what we have, it's proven, it's done. But there's no 
process. There's no, this is what we tried, this is how we got here, this is the first examples that we came up with that led us to the idea that this might be a general property. It's not something that I experienced reading in books or in articles in my studies, and it makes it a lot of, it makes it very mystical where all this knowledge comes from sometimes. If you look at the literature, the the historical literature of psychology, it's one uh, gigantic um, uh, process of making errors and stumbling through figuring out how human beings behave. Uh, and I think in, in, in many ways this is the case for a lot of uh, other scientific writing, that it kind of lays bare this process, this frustration at times, these errors. What you described earlier, France, as an example of a, of a dead end of an idea, and it's interesting to see this kind of contrast in mathematics. Uh, so how do you ever learn how to do this if you don't have access to the process? Struggling. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of struggling. Um, yeah. Uh, when you sit in a, in a lecture and you see a proof of a theorem and you think, oh my God, I never, never could have come up with that. But then, you know, in order to learn mathematics, you have to do a lot of the work yourself. You have to prove easier things at first. But you, you at some point get used to just starting something and trying and thinking of a simple example and using that. But you, you learn it by doing, but it's, 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 a, it's a little bit implicit mm -hmm. at times. I think a lot of professors try to tell us that you really learn mathematics by doing it, and it it's true, but it doesn't really show in the in the text itself in the end. Yeah, I mean, this is it's a kind of frustrating in the sense that it takes years to learn that the frustration is a normal part of the process because you always see it immediately solved, and you say, okay, but they did it. It seems so easy now, and uh, to get that easy thing, you struggle for quite a while. And I would imagine that this big difference actually will end up in something different also in the way we read and approach text even though th even just think you know I need to apply some theorem somewhere so the first thing I do is just I read the statement of the theorem and that minimal notation I need to make sense of it and then I check if it holds in my in my setting if it doesn't I might move to something else before checking the proof and see if the proof can be adapted to myself unless somebody that knows about it can tell me I do think that if you look at the proof, perhaps you can adjust it to work in your case. So that sounds a bit, I think that might be a good topic to, to discuss a bit further, how you actually read. So if you we think of... mathematicians? Oh, you yeah, no, but uh, all of you mm -hmm. and different texts. So if you read a novel, you usually do not look at the next chapter to see, you know, how because you want to have the flow and and the author makes it that way that it's very very crucial that you don't <laughs> skip to the end or you know that that's not the idea while in scientific reading if you look into an article or if you're interested in a subject you usually go into it a bit you look at the title you scan the abstract you might look a bit to let's say methods or results and then you can leave it there that that might serve your purposes, or you might say, "Oh, that's interesting," and then you go, huh? you go to the methods. How did it get there? So it's it's a very peculiar way of reading, and this is sort of what you, I think, you suggested that okay, I look at the theorem, I look at what I minimally need to understand it a bit, and then I look at 
and it's just sort of judging whether to go deep or not. Indeed. And 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 a lot of things already work at this superficial level. If you're let's say doing research and you're looking for uh, authors where you could uh, align with whatever you might you might scan 50 articles or something and and you might scan 100 by the title and 50 by the abstract and then go into oh, there might be something in there and then then you get into this frustration thing how do they actually do did this and then you have just you're struggling with three sentences in which to explain what they actually did and then you still don't understand and then you look up another you know so it it's a very it's a process which you can really you're continuously deciding how deep you want to go Oh, it seems that what you're describing is very goal-oriented, and one of the first steps to reading seems to be to define what your goals with this reading are. And I think even at this step, kind of, we lose a lot of people at some point where we don't, with our students, we don't discuss what the goal of reading is in the first place, because again, we make the assumption that, well, everybody understands how to set their own goals. But indeed, the goals with a textbook are different with the goals when you're reading an article and the goals of reading an article are different if you if it's one of 20 that you want to read to compile an essay versus one article that you want to understand from cover to cover. I think one of the most important aspects of, let's call it successful reading or fulfilling reading or happy reading, is to know what you're doing it for, what your purposes are. I, I wouldn't call it happy because sometimes for my purpose I have to read some things that makes me very sad. But <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but uh, I, I agree with your point. The, the purpose of the reading makes a big difference and uh, it's something that um, not just we need to make it explicit uh, with our students. I don't think making it explicit is enough. I think you have to suffer through it a few times before you start getting the gist, right? If when I... My students start their bachelor very often. I tell them just skim through this thing to see to just get an understanding, vague understanding of the topics bec- before we dive in. But then at the next meeting, they come with very detailed question on the first deep statement that is in all of the paper. And you say, we don't need to go so deep in everything because we will never finish the bachelor. Mm. We need to just uh, keep it focused, right? Your your aim is finishing this project. Project the first thing is get an understanding of the environment and get an understanding of your problem and then look just at the theory that you need for that and keep all the rabbit holes for uh, whenever you want to look at them but not for the project otherwise we will never end that and saying it is not enough you have to work through it and then um, it becomes like a mindful moment now each time you are distracted by the rabbit holes you have to take a step back and say no this is for later and then you go back and you say okay now i read the next title and abstract and see and then you say no I don't need to look at everything now. Let's move it on the side. So it's not just about knowing what you're expected to do and what the purpose of the reading is, but also be very, very, very mindful and not following your curiosity too much in each of the steps. Otherwise, uh, it will become, uh, it could become problematic if you're doing a project, for example. But this, yeah. this is the same with the textbook, right? Again, so being purposeful, right? Yeah. Sometimes the curiosity is the purpose. Sometimes. Yeah allowing that curiosity to, to, to take you to any broad um, topic and any old rabbit hole might be the exact purpose that you're doing yeah, the yeah, reading yeah. for. But then in the case, you should pursue the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And this is the same, uh, what I was saying, indeed, the same of reading a textbook. If I need to read the textbook to study for the courses, if I need to read the textbook to understand a bit of the theory for my project, 
or if I'm reading the textbook just because I want to understand the topic because perhaps I need to teach it and I want to have a few ideas of what I could teach before I settle on something. Those are three very different ways of reading that textbook for me. Mm. One is more like a novel where I'm following through and seeing where this goes and one is very focused on what is the minimum I need to do to understand what's written on page X, Y, Z. Could I ask you about friends? Friends. <laughs> when I, I when we give literature to um, to students, I often try to. Uh, th there's a sort of re reference or of for the authors. If if students start reading uh, uh, authors, and particularly if they're say well known in the field, and these are the classical authors or, or well cited authors, I said there's sort of oh, this professor, this professor, and I try to sort of bring it down a bit that you say no you should look at every scientist as a friend it's just one we are in a community of, of scholars and 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 basically science is a very horizontal organization there's no students can make very valid and, and good contributions PhD students can can are actually now uh, in many ways at the forefront of science although they are the youngest people in the room and um but then, if we talk about the style of text, if you read a novel and you've read one or two pages, you get a sort of feel for the author because language is very subtle, right? It, it, the way you structure, the way you write, it, it's very different between authors. If you read no novels, it's, just, it's, it's amazing. With just a few words, you, you get a sort of feeling for somebody. But in our scientific text, we ten tend to strip now a lot. We, we write this international English, which, which is not really English, and it's very business-like in a way. And, and this, in a way, prevents also a bit of a personal tone. So it also prevents this idea of that somebody is, is, is basically talking to you. But is this, does this resonate with you? Um, it's not really something that I've thought about a lot before, I'd have to say. So, But you read original Descartes. <laughs> yeah. You probably read some Nietzsche or something. Yeah. I'm thinking about it. I think also at the time I was also very focused on, you know, it's, it's reading that you have to do for a course. You have a very clear idea of um, what you need to do with it you you need to understand it you need to write a paper about it it's so I think I haven't always taken the time to reflect a lot on the things that I was reading maybe more in a in a joking way with my friends uh, at the end of the lecture where we make friends. fun of some of the <laughs> philosophers that we read but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you actually making fun of the philosopher? <laughs> Definitely, yes. Yeah, <laughs> they'd, they'd probably appreciate this too. Yeah, I didn't think about that before as well. But when you are mentioning it, I could think that even though there are many textbooks that are kind of uh, dry from that point of view, that are more about the facts than anything, there are many other nowadays that use the. Images, for example, use cartoonish drawings to explain uh, what is going on in their text, or that they just write in the same way they would 
teach to the students or uh, talk to friends. There are some authors that uh, write books in such a way that it's a dialogue. So there are two characters and talk to each other. And uh, so there are some at least that um, that at least take their own unique space and have their mm. own unique style. And when you see them, you recognize them. You recognize the clarity, the fun, the... Uh, they, they make it really enjoyable in the sense that something human passes through the notes. Yeah. And uh, and those are the ones that usually want, I remember at least. Yeah, and I admire uh, them also greatly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they are yeah. very few. I mean, they are not yeah. the norm, they are the exception. Yeah, yeah I feel exactly the same way. I find it a, a great shame that um, character is not encouraged and if anything i think it's being as you described this uh, this uh, universal academic english which is very information driven but not very process driven not a lot of personality i find it uh, not just a shame i find it offensive and i find it um, a discredit to what we do as human beings there's also this this pretense i teach a lot of uh, methodology type of courses of meta um, science type of uh, material and one of the things that you often see is this idea of removing personality from a writing style in order to accentuate the objectivity of science, which I think is, um, is a poor way of dealing with objectivity if there is such a thing as objectivity. This is a completely different topic for another podcast episode. But largely, as you say, I enjoy reading and I enjoy writing as a conversation with myself, first of all, and with people who exist within the same field as I do. And I, I, I try to accentuate the reasons, or I, I try to describe the reasons why I select certain texts in my courses, uh, also based on style. Sometimes I choose some articles because they're from the 1950s and they're a pain in the ass to understand, and the language is very difficult, but my God, I think we should be able to read articles from the 1950s even today even if it takes us 50 percent more time than a more modern article um, because i think this is an important skill to have mm. and because i think it's fun it's fun to see that uh, people have characters that come through their writing and which i think also color the way they do science or the way they understand phenomena or the way they approach phenomena or the way they create models of the world. I don't think, I think language is intimately connected with how you interpret the world and therefore create models of the world. Uh, and we ought to pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah. You come again with this fun stuff and, 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 and you talk about that you actually did not have, that you did not take the time to enjoy or reflect you say a few words uh, more on that, isn't that? Especially, I mean, I, I never studied philosophy as a uh, perhaps one one course uh, some sometime, but not really as a program. But we have this I ideal idea about about philosophy. Oh man, you have time to reflect, and but I see what you mean, um, and this is also something that. I personally reflected on in my third year when I was uh, finishing my bachelor's that um, I realized that I was very driven by academic motivations, very driven by getting good grades and doing well in my courses, and um, that 
that limited my enjoyment every once in a while and that I hadn't really I mean you read a lot for your philosophy studies you have to read a lot but you don't read as much as you might actually expect I mean you read a lot but you aren't able to read much from a lot of philosophers so you read Descartes but you only read a few chapters and you read Aristotle but only one part of one of his books and I missed reading for the enjoyment of it and um, I think philosophy is not something that you can learn three years and then be done it's something that you have to keep learning and you if you want to and there's always going to be so much more to read and in my third year I really realized that um, that I missed reading for wanting to to learn and think and um, so yeah in, in my experience um, yeah, I was <laughs> a yeah. little bit driven by um, practical purposes, like what do I need to do for my paper and for my test. Yeah. But you also said, was that a sort of a mistake? I should actually rephrase that. I meant that I was more motivated by uh, wanting to get good grades and do well. And I don't think that academia is all about that. The thing is, I think it's all about also about having fun, wanting to learn and letting yourself have fun learning and that's also something that you have to yeah. let yourself do. I, I think that's something that we are actually failing as academic to achieve in some sense because we are in a system that is designed to test you and give you some grade and, and, and basically is uh, giving the incentive to you to optimize your time in this plethora of courses that you have to take and the time that you have for your life as well so that you're optimizing to get the grade, to get the piece of paper. And somehow by doing this, we are focusing a lot of the drive in this very practical, very timely, very deadline-oriented, very uh, correct answer-oriented, something mm -hmm. that we had already touched upon in the episode on failure, right? That everything we do is hiding the failure and is punishing and shaming the failure and pushing for the successes and for the good grade and the good answer. And somehow this cuts the fun in some sense because... Mm -hmm. You don't have, the f even when you read something boring, if something that is interesting you or where you start finding the interest, you need to have the time to digest it, the time to think mm -hmm. about it, the time to uh, complain about it, to make fun of it or whatever. But uh, it's that, that fun that links to your curiosity, to your drive. The, fa the fact also that you can do it in your own time, at your own pace. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, and we will have soon, we are, we are going to record soon an episode on something called ungrading, um, which is really this idea not to, n to, to remove grades, but at least to try to move the focus of the learning and give the ownership of it to the students and allow them to do it in their own pace and uh, having a clear idea of where they have to go, but doing it by taking ownership of it. Yeah. Mm. At its core, it's motivated by exactly what you both were describing, Franz and um, Henrique, this idea that, and what you were describing, Marcello, this, this failure as, as teachers, as academics, to, to create the right structures and the right incentives. I was thinking of another episode we recorded, the critical pedagogy one, where yeah. if you want to critically reflect, I think we are, as teachers and as students, we're both in an environment that we're not entirely happy with because... The grades, even though we perhaps agree are necessary, that's a topic for next week for us to discuss in the ungrading episode, 
certainly create this idea that what academic success is, is reflected in grades. So I think the way you phrased it, Henrique, is, in my view, not just correct, and I'm putting that in air quotes, but I think fundamentally shared among an entire community in, uh, within academia of either students or, lear- or um, uh, teachers or, or both, because the grades exist and because they are motivators for behavior. And perhaps um, uh, because of this, there is not enough space to create or maybe to link it back to what we said as purpose or goals. Often the goal is to achieve a certain grade. And our hope as educators is that the grade reflects mastery and it takes an awful lot of work to create structures where this is true. And most often than not, it's only partially successful as in the cases that you described, for example, where we want our a high grade, uh, w- we want mastery to also reflect a certain amount of enjoyment or a certain amount of connectedness with our texts, but often our assessment methods fail to account for this or fail to promote this, right? Yeah. So I think this is, uh, you know, again, to sort of be a little bit uh, a little bit meta on this topic, this is exactly why we like having these discussions on this podcast, because it's not often that we have spaces where we can kind of pare back the various layers and, and get to the core of this. I think these are shared impressions between a lot of people, but not with a lot of platforms to lay them on the table and say, well, this is the, this is the case. I, I was thinking what, what we sometimes... Uh, it, it also has to do with taking each other seriously mm. at some point. So if you're in this role of... Uh, that, that let's say the teacher supervises and gives grades, so he's in the he or she's in the the judging position, right? So you're then there's always a hierarchy, and it's a clear hierarchy, and, and you're aware of that. Well, we do at at in the research master, we tend to give as many pass grades as we can <laughs> to prevent this, you know, and and pass just depends on being seriously engaged. And uh, I've given all sorts of uh, education uh, throughout the years, but I like it very much in the research masters that s- students are very uh, motivated and engaged by default, sort of. So if we decide to read a book, we read a book. And I don't have to invent all sorts of mechanisms to make sure that they really read the book. or whatever. And if they didn't read the book every once in a while, well, usually something serious happened, right? and, and this can happen, right? So um, I, I think that's also, um, and, and sometimes uh, people are very ambitious. That's our culture now, and they want to have high grades and this and that, or they, they want to show that they are very good or whatever. And then sometimes you have to say, no, you've been admitted to one of the most uh, prestigious uh, programs. Uh, it was, you're okay. You can just... <laughs> Follow the program now. <laughs> you don't have to within the program still do, 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 try to try to show because everybody's intelligent here. Everybody is is okay in its own style, and we can just be together and and develop in our own pace in our own color. And uh, perhaps something is there that we might be tougher at the entry of a course or something like that. And then there's an open space, like to, and you don't need all the grades, so you could just do it to get it over with, <laughs> and then we're in an equal space. Like that. Is that an idea? 
I'm thinking. <laughs> I, I think it's a very nice idea, in fact. Uh, I find it hard to reconcile it with the current culture. I would have a student telling me, but now how do I know who did better, who did wrong? Why my seminar is the same as this other seminar? I think I did it better. Why I shouldn't have an eight and that person shouldn't have a six? And it sounds like artificial, but these are the kind of answer I had when I was suggesting why shouldn't we put a pass or fail on a certain course? So this is kind of ingrained, not just in the system itself, but somehow we have thought so well to our student that this matters, that it's very hard to get rid of it now. And uh, I agree with you. If you are in a good program and if you invest your time of it, you can do very well. And ju just going at your own pace and doing it seriously. I think that's the point. If you do it seriously, not in the sense of boring, but in the sense of investing your time, then you will be fine and you will have learned a lot. Uh, but it's a clash of culture, and clashing culture mm -hmm. takes uh, takes a long time. I can also think of examples in which students did extremely poorly on an exam, and then they come to me and say, but why I've read the whole book, and I want to come back to reading here. Uh, and then you said, yes, but did you do any exercise? I say, no, I've read everything. And you say, but that's, that's also a difference in reading, right? Reading to understand if I read it at the moment, I might think that everything is clear, but if I don't try to put it into practice, no. uh, if I don't act upon it, going back to uh, the critical pedagogy, if I don't act upon uh, what I'm learning, then somehow I am not learning. No. I had imprinted some knowledge in my brain for the time of my memory to forget it, and I don't have anything that allowed me to retain it and get back to it. And so it's also, I think, important having this discussion about reading in the sense that studying and reading can be two very different things. Yeah. And it's not enough to just read. No. It's important to just read, but it's not enough to just read no. to then do well and even to be engaged. Just reading is not being engaged with the material, is not being engaged with the course. No. It needs somehow to critically address this material and uh, to put it into practice to question it because there might be typos, because there might be mistakes in what you're reading. And this is more common that we, we have this peer review process and everything, but mistakes slip in very easily. No. To be practical with uh, the messages that we have in this in this episode, also for, uh, for people who are interested in developing their, their reading skills or their reading practices, one of the things that helped me a lot 20-odd years ago, I think, when I first looked at this, it's a book called How to Read a Book. I, does anybody know this? No. No. Again, air quotes, classic in the, in the literature of, uh, of reading. Mortimer Adler was, a, I think, philosopher and educator. And in this book, essentially describes or creates a framework for a lot of the things that we talk about uh, different levels. He described four different levels of reading, starting from the elementary level, which is basically what you pick up in primary school, how to read, how to translate the, the symbols into words and how to put them together and read passages, to the second level, which is what he called, I think, uh, inspectional, which is something uh, superficial. It's, it's either kind of purposeful skimming or uh, superficial reading, the kind of reading that we often talk about when we talk about reading, which is I look at text, I read through the text, I take in information as a, I'll call it passive observer without questioning it, 
essentially as somebody who defers their or who gives authority to the author to say, okay, tell me, what is it that I should know? Give me this information. And I would say that the majority of the reading that we do is on that level. When I read the newspaper, for me, it's basically superficial reading. I read to see what facts happened or what things happen in the world, what facts this journalist has to tell me. The other two levels are the more interesting ones, the analytical level in which you really work with the material, you ask questions, you interrogate it, if you like, you have conversations with the author, you find parts that are important to you, you create summaries, um, uh, you define what the problems are, what the questions are, what the solutions are, and this is kind of the level that we're talking about when it comes to uh, reading uh, primary sources or even textbooks where we want ourselves as readers, our students as readers, to engage with the material in a way where they ask questions and they go, well, is this true? I've read other things that might contradict this or what kind of what kind of applications might, might this have in my practice as a psychologist, as a mathematician or as a citizen of the world, um, etc.? And then the final level, what they, uh, what uh, Adler called, I think, syntopical, which is essentially synthetical, where the point isn't to read a source to understand it from cover to cover, but to take materials from multiple sources and synthesize them together. And this is ultimately what uh, we want academic reading to be. When you're writing an essay and you're trying to synthesize, you suddenly have the task of, finding multiple authors who all kind of talk about the same topics, all slightly with different vocabularies, and you have to make them your own. This is the point where the the, the, the content becomes your own and you start phrasing it in your own language. You, you uh, translate it essentially to new terms that you understand yourself and that you can work with and uh, become cohesive. And then you create some kind of... Um, um, uh, discussion of the different perspectives and some kind of synthesis of all of these perspectives. It's a, it's an interesting book. It's not a very long book. It's I'm, I'm not sure I would call it fun to read, but it it was one of the books that really laid bare for me this idea that actually reading isn't this thing to take uh, for granted or t- that is automatic. And once you know how to read words, you're done with practicing the skill of reading. Uh, I think until now that it's so it's i think it's a very powerful division which you make but if you think about that we are also trying to teach students to read and then what happens then so these adler division is sort of a um, a man or woman in free space mm-hmm. how can you read i decide to read a newspaper on a superficial level i de- decide to be more analytical i decide to be synoptical but now here, we wanted students to read uh, Descartes, and uh, uh, Henrika, she just forgot to, well, she, she wanted to behave, so she had to ask questions, so you ask questions. <laughs> but these are not, there's this double layer, right? You have to do it, so you think of questions, but it's not really, well, not really you, in a way. You discovered it at the end, well, it's, uh, I'm over overdoing it perhaps a bit but so how i think that's our challenge as educators right sure to i think the purpose and the manner kind of have to develop simultaneously i think this is what you're describing to simultaneously keep in mind what the purpose of 
reading is, what your goal with reading is. And I think this is one of the things that he describes in uh, in his writing, that different modes of reading or different levels of reading just have different purposes. Yeah, but can you spoil the analytical stuff? Let's say the analytical reading mm-hmm. by putting this educational layer of, okay, you have to, uh, I have to see that you did it well. Uh, well, that's not. Ed- I would say that this is the assessment level, not the educational level, and I okay. separate assessment from education. Yeah. Okay, but by giving, let's say, having this assessment at at the, at the back of students sure. who have to practice this this analytical reading, you might sort of spoil the process. That that was sort of what what I thought about it. So that, that makes it a double layered thing. There's just this free space with a, of of these four levels of reading. Uh, but if I would do it, I'm a senior scientist. There's nobody sort of mm-hmm. overlooking me. Whether oh, Franz, no, 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 this was too superficial. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know. Uh, well, and, and if you do it with students, you know, how can this be a real process while we assess, uh, or are we spoiling the process? So again, not to spoil the episode that comes in a couple of weeks, but uh, this is the discussion that we're having uh, on the topic of grading and assessment, whether whether essentially assessment is not just not useful for the uh, for our educational purposes, but actually <coughs> a big hindrance. Yeah. Whether assessment actually kills the real topic of learning, which is to to to, to play <coughs> with all of this. As we're approaching sort of the last uh, 10 minutes of this episode, I've been very curious throughout this conversation, Henrique, to, to ask you about your, your own journey as a reader um, at this university. I know you've, um, uh, you've done a bachelor in philosophy and, uh, and uh, one in mathematics, and uh, now you're in your mathematics master. And I, I, I presume or I suspect, and maybe I'm wrong, your your own relationship to reading has gone through various stages and I'm curious to ask you about this, how you reflect on this. Um, Yes, well, there's definitely a lot, well, there is definitely less reading involved in mathematics. Um, Actually, before this podcast, I just, for fun, I opened some of my my books from uh, philosophy and I read all the comments that I wrote in the the margins and... um, I think I still read in a similar manner. Um, I grab a pen and I just read through and underline and write all my thoughts on the margin. And so it's kind of similar in that sense. Um, although I spend less time reading through a chapter or a book and more time specifically with a goal of wanting to understand a certain topic or theorem or proof, reading very specific parts in a paper or a book. And one other thing that that I thought about is that sometimes when you have the goal to understand a certain proof, for example, um, reading it is a very slow process because it's not just reading it's also being able to reproduce it and that can really take a long time so one of the papers that I read for my master's thesis I just spent months on because there was a proof and it was a couple of pages long but every step in the proof I had to pause and think okay so where does this come from and I just spent for example days just on figuring out 
one line why why is this true why is why does this hold very interesting thing actually if you look at the spectrum of science and if you you can have text which you can read let's say uh, i don't know what the at high speed and then there's also things where you go line by line like you say and then one line takes you a few days to digest i think that's very very interesting actually so that's sort of the at at the outer end of the, the deepest reading you can probably do and uh, so it's 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 a very nice uh, that you bring this up thinking about this thing that it can take days for even a line which i can relate very much to uh there was a colleague some times ago that was um that was saying that he feels that with this advent of um, videos and uh, podcasts and uh, different media transmitting uh, scientific knowledge we are somehow doing a disservice to our students since that most of this knowledge is actually written with way more details and understanding in text and by uh, diluting it in a few minute video we give the impression that we are that we understand what is going on but we actually don't know to paraphrase a british tv show we know nothing no. and so i'm uh, curious uh, what do you think about this is this a disservice to reading is this something that is useful i can personally see the value in both and i still think that reading at some point it becomes useful reading and practicing on that reading but i also think that there is so much knowledge that is useful to have it distilled in pills at some point and that we are all different and it could be that i i get it better by reading and somebody else gets it better by listening and somebody else gets it better by a video and it also depends a lot on the type of knowledge i can see that a podcast is not the best way to teach you a proof of a mathematical statement but it might work very well for another kind of topic so what do you all think yeah i think i think it's amazing the possibilities you have if you use video and i use it myself and i use it for many purposes and it's i think it's extremely powerful uh but also i think texts have evolved with more images it's also a very nice feature that is more easy to in, in insert uh, f- figures and, and, and photographs and, and stuff so um but i feel at this point in our our, our podcast it's, it's sort of nice to, to to link this up with with uh, henrika her point that if if i think back on my phd thesis i had uh, some something like five uh, like 200 references in the in reference list but if i think back on it and also i was aware then that in the end there might be sort of like five titles which really mattered to me which really influenced my thinking and i think we talked today about reading but it's in the end it's about the effect reading has on your thinking or your who you are your development and uh so that in science science is obviously it is something relatively deep uh, we take time to to understand and to 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 dig deeper into into things and then it's very important i think to 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 start recognizing when you really relate to something and you w- really want to know something 
and that this is not a thing which you do with 100 books or 100 articles. It's just, and it can be one video, it can be one mathematical proof, it can be uh, uh, one title in, in a thesis uh, reference list. Um, and it's important to uh, acknowledge that, but it's also, I would, uh, uh, we were talking about whether or not we should give some advice, and uh, uh, I don't know if it's a good advice, but anyway, I, I think it's, it's important to, to, to say that this is the reality of things, that you often stick deeply with a few authors or a few books or a few things, and, and you dig relatively deep into that. And uh, uh, so it's, it's also, if, if students listening to this, uh, I would encourage them to, to, uh, well, uh, to do that, actually. And uh, don't forget it. If you come across something where you really relate to it, to put that book aside and read it, perhaps it's not needed in, in that course <laughs> uh, or, or in that particular activity where you're engaged. But, but it's very important to find a few of these sources where you really relate to and cherish them. Yeah, I completely agree. It's often said that when it comes to writing, you need to find your voice. But I think... Uh, when it comes to reading, uh, whatever the analogy w would be, you also need to find your own perspective or you need to find your own uh, uh, voice, perhaps, or your own friends, as you said earlier, Franz, and, uh, and develop a personality as a, as a reader, not just as a reader for fun, but as a reader for, for your science. Speaking of reading for fun, what are you all reading these days? Enrique, what are you reading? Um, I've lately been going through uh, everything uh, Neil Gaiman uh, has written. Amazing. <laughs> what are you reading? Wh what of his are you reading right now? Right. Well, I'm still on, the, on one of his um, um, collections of short stories, Fragile Things. But I've also been reading some Taylor Jenkins read mm -hmm. books uh, these days. So, yeah of a mix of everything very good Franz what uh, what do you read for fun I'm curious well my most recent book is a is a new translation of the Tao Te Ching okay by, by Benjamin Hoff mm -hmm. and uh, in a way that's also line by line reading <laughs> and looking at why it's translated this way and uh, that way that it was originally written not in brush Chinese characters but in, in different style of characters and through translating it to brush characters a lot of interpretation probably got lost and so you read a lot of notes per line it's interesting and I'm a big fan of Kader Abdola mm -hmm. he's a Iranian Dutch author who came from the Persian literature and, and was a refugee here and then said okay I'm in the Netherlands I will write Dutch with all the struggles that come with but I think he evolved into one of our greatest writers, so, uh, and I'm a big fan of his. Great. I have a mix of reading. I, uh, I'm reading literally a lot of comics, and mostly about science, scientific biographies. The last one I'm reading is actually about uh, magicians. And uh, there is a group of uh, skeptics in England, one of which is a professor of psychology that studies uh, how to fool the mind, and then they did this book on the history of famous magicians, famous scientists, and so on, and they made it with comics, and it's beautiful because there are magic tricks in the story. So, mm. so you get tricked through the stories. Interesting. And, um, and so I'm 
reading lots of these comics. In general, I like um, science fiction, uh, but I've not read um, anything recently. I have bought the latest of Greg Egan, but it's still in the list of to do to read. And um, I like uh, yeah, and I like. Um, popular science like book, especially with the psychology or uh, this is something that I always liked. Like I wasn't decided with uh, aerospace engineering when I was little because I wanted to become an astronaut like most people. And then I liked mathematics, but uh, I always wondered if I should have done computer science or psychology because those were the things that I really read a lot of stuff about. And I computer kind of like science of psychology. Yeah, it's I like how things works, and I don't think the mind and the computer are so different in the sense well. that you can investigate how th it's nice to put, take them apart and see how they work, and I find it fascinating. So that's why I read those kind of books. Um, Speaking of philosophy and mathematics and comics, have you all or have you uh, both seen a, um, a comic book called Logic Comics about Bertrand Russell's? Um, writing of the the foundational quest in mathematics of his Principia, I think it was. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I yeah. have not, but I'm very curious. I'll, uh, do you have it, uh, Marcello? Can you I have it at home. I can bring it at our next meeting. Nice. It's, um, it's nice. highly recommended. Yeah, it was a fun read as far as graphic novels and philosophy and mathematics go. But what do you read in your free time? Uh, you know, it changes through the uh, it changes through the year. In the summer, I read a lot of uh, novels. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of sort of turn of the 20th century uh, writers for my summer reading. And uh, once the semester begins, I tend to switch more towards uh, popular science type of books because it feels like although I'm reading for fun, it kind of informs also my teaching and my work, and therefore I feel slightly less guilty about it, or it seems to to, to fill both purposes. And now I, um, I just bought, um, for Christmas, I bought my daughter um, uh, a collection of books by Ursula Le Guin, Science Fiction, Rokanon's World, the four or five books of Rokanon's World, and I haven't read them myself, so I was going to start reading those in the next couple of weeks. But um, we'll see how, how that works. You mentioned that. That's uh, actually a nice thing. Uh, uh, I sometimes do with my wife. that I r We read out loud to each other, like you do with children. It's actually a very nice, <laughs> oh, nice, <laughs> nice activity, yep. uh, which you forget. You, we tend to do it with our little children, but it's actually also to uh, to do it for for, for grown-ups to because uh, then you have a bit of a shared experience yeah. <laughs> actually thing. when our son was very very little and he couldn't understand what i was reading then i picked a few books that i wanted to read for myself and since he just liked to hear us reading i just read those books yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nowadays we have to read what he wants but uh, yeah. or what they want in general but uh, it was super fun the first three years so we were, I had this The Origin of Space is Time uh, by, by Stephen Hawking was one of the books I was reading I had one <laughs> on the history of dinosaurs by Piero Angela I had, <laughs> I had things that were definitely not kids book even though they were fun like the one with dinosaurs every now and then you would hear oh that was a big dinosaur and they were happy but Overall, it, could, it wasn't really listening to me. It was just, I was reading for me, and then it was just there for the voice, I guess. 
So this sounds like a good time to end the episode. It was a great pleasure to have you here with us. I, uh, w- it's, we have a few episodes since I came here. Each episode I end with more question and more thought than when I started. And I love this. I love questioning what I was thinking and then having food for thought for uh, the next weeks. So thank you very much for that. There was uh, really a lot of new insight for me at least. And all these ideas of the difference between the reading but also the analysis and uh, how much the authors how much the authors appear in the books, how much time it takes to read, how much how many different ways of reading in fact we have there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what services or disservices we might be doing to our students by not being clear or by being too pushy for uh, grades. So thank you very much. Thank you. I think uh, it was a, a very nice experience, actually. And uh, thank you for being such a kind and, and uh, professionally good hosts, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, same thing. Thanks for uh, for having us. I uh, definitely agree with the idea of leaving with more questions uh, than I came here, but then that's uh, also something that uh, I'm used to from philosophy. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Thank you all. It's been a lovely discussion to have. And thank you to our listeners for sticking with us through another episode of Degrees of Freedom. We hope you have found some answers through it, but indeed more questions and some connectedness in um, in your journey as readers and as um, students or teachers at this university or elsewhere. This podcast was a production of the University of Groningen.